welcome to Adamant Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Luis Cifuentes and I'll be your host for today's episode of Adamant Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adamant Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. Recently, various social movements like, for example, Black Lives Matter, the Land Defense of Wetzelwooden, and the Mi'kmaq fishing resolution conflicts have caught the attention of the general public about unaddressed conflicts within post-colonial institutions. From these contentions, white nationalism rhetoric has emboldened not only the digital space, but also evident in massive rallies across the US and Canada, and to highlight the capital siege in the US along with some protests against health restriction orders. Because of this resurgence in right-wing extremism, we wanted to see how white supremacy connected to feminist and anti-patriarchal struggles. We've created a two-part series where we talk to experts about white supremacy. In this week's episode, we will be talking to Dr. Rangwala, and in our next episode, which will air in two weeks, we'll feature our interview with Dr. Mukherjee. Here is the interview that me and Rosie of Forrest Jenkins, a co-producer at Adam and Eve, conducted with Dr. Rangwala, who is an assistant professor at York University. Hello, Dr. Rangwala, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Can you tell us about yourself and your research? Yeah, so I am an assistant professor in the Department of Humanities at York University, but right now I'm speaking to you from Edmonton because of the coronavirus. I think that first of all, I can talk a little bit about the crises that you mentioned, and maybe that can feed into um, thinking about my specific work on ideological adaptations. So we need to really think about, you know, what is this a crisis of, and think about the ways that people are coalescing in particular social movements, you know, white supremacist movements, left-wing movements as well. But I think one way to think about this is through thinking about the atomization of the individual under neoliberalism. So um, in 2015, Brown wrote this book, Undoing the Demos. And in that book, she argued that neoliberalism was transforming political subjects into economic subjects. So instead of, you know, considering ourselves as having a civic duty to the community, neoliberalism atomized us into individuals whose relations were governed by exchange. You can see this happening in Alberta in the ways that services that used to be public are being privatized. It's manifesting in the coronavirus crisis that people are like, oh, putting on a mask is impinging on my individual freedom. So it's a very particular definition of, you know, the free individual within the kind of structurally oppressive, you know, an exclusionary and unfree system of racial capitalism. So, in this time where we have all of these intensifying individualisms, you have seen the rise of right-wing populisms with, you know, Trump and Bolsonaro and Modi um, in India, you know, Duterte, Viktor Orban. So we really see this as a global phenomenon. Like we, we can't talk about the UCP without talking about the global ecosystem that they are a part of. I think that this anti-masking is just such a perfect example of this. And also this is like something we can talk about with why are the anti-maskers also carrying like Charlottesville cheeky torches in Calgary the week after. And so we need to just like connect all of these things like within this ecosystem 
that has kind of emerged out of austerity, out of neoliberalism, but is really also just fundamental to this settler colonialism and racial capitalism. So my research is about what I term ideological adaptation, which is a way of thinking about how these structures of power adapt over time. And so we might think that things like the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery, the Voting Rights Act, civil rights legislation in the 1960s ended official segregation. But with thinking about adaptation, these weren't actually endings. These were inflection points where that system of power that's anti-Blackness, that is, of course, very much rooted in this system, racial capitalism. So legal emancipation was not freedom because, you know, after that period of reconstruction, you have like the KKK, you have really violent white supremacy. Think about the ways that, you know, mass incarceration follows Jim Crow. These are structures of anti-Blackness that reinscribe themselves. And that is the adaptation of racial capitalism. Um, we can think about how Canada kind of has always positioned itself as a kind of nicer place than the US. Um, I would say Robin Maynard's Policing Black Lives is a really great and accessible book for listeners to look at with thinking about you know, slavery in Canada. Um, even this thing, multiculturalism, the history of multiculturalism is anti-Black and anti-Indigenous because it flattens, right? But it emerged because of tensions between English and French Canada, and then, you know, Father Trudeau is like, oh, like, this is going to be a really good, good solution to this is just to like, create this kind of national mythology of multiculturalism. But that's an adaptation of white supremacy and anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity in Canada. So this is where, you know, ideological adaptation is against narratives of progress because it is a way of looking at these things that we think are progress and seeing them instead as reinscriptions or kind of costumings, the same structures that put themselves in like a different package. But the model that I like to think about, well, there are two. One of them is thinking about the kind of flexibility of liberalism. And so I'm using liberalism to refer to kind of that individualism of racial capitalism, where it's like, yeah, we're all like sovereign autonomous subjects, which is you know, not true, but that's the kind of fantasy of liberalism, but how that ideology adapts itself. So the honeycomb is one that I really like because it has kind of perforations. It can be this resistance or critique or whatever, they're like holes in it, but that actually makes it really flexible in a way that like totalitarianism is something very rigid that could just break, like, you know, what to critique with totalitarianism because it is total. With liberalism, because it keeps adapting, that's how it reproduces itself. Another model that I like to use, and this is very relevant, I think, to our COVID times, is Roberto Esposito's Immunitas model. And so he argues that in a kind of body, the way that the body deals with threats is not to fight that threat, but to incorporate it, to make it part of the body. So he's using this biological framework, but I think it is really helpful for thinking about the way that ideology adapts itself and kind of neutralizes its threats. So the way that the state deals with threats will be like the Black Lives Matter protests of this summer and then having Kamala Harris as vice president that's incorporating it 
But who is Kamala Harris? She is somebody whose life has been invested in, in carceral capitalism. And so, you know, it's not actually helping, you know, the cause of Black Lives Matter to have Kamala Harris as vice president, but it looks like it is, right? So this is just kind of scratching the surface of what of what ideological adaptation um, means and, and does. So, yeah, like Jojo, you're mentioning all this this stuff about like white supremacy adapting to new conditions by way of making more comfortable people, right? Like that's kind of the sal- the salt of capitalism after like post war and all that stuff. It's like we can make you comfortable, right? And then people use like an yeah. escape, like especially American people. That's why like it's sad that is so Americanized, like American centric. But again, it's the perfect example of right right in, in your face kind of capitalism selling you this kind of escapism like very quick escapisms right and like ignoring whatever's happening in south america and like invasions that were going on and and those are distributed through art and uh through culture i think it's a really good point to bring up kind of the post-war and precisely as you say this idea that culture is pacifying this idea that yeah we kind of enjoy our oppression because it's hard to imagine something outside of it because our imagination has been hijacked by the culture industry so we're imagining like I don't know hobbits and and shit like that right like our most fantastical films are not imagining a way out of our current systems of power Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important, like novelists like Octavia Butler and folks who focus on Afrofuturism that really do provide a solution to that. Like I just, yeah, their work is just so wonderful. So that's the next question that I was going to ask of like, in your work, uh, you kind of focus on American novels uh, to track the progression of white supremacy. So we're wondering what you've learned and what are some of the most insidious forms of ideological adaptation that you notice? I'm really thinking a lot about diversity and inclusion initiatives and institutions and the ways that if we are using Roberto Esposito's model of like incorporating threats into the system rather than like fighting them, right? That's the perfect way to do it is to say, well, look, we have struck a committee of like BIPOC people. And so how can we be racist? Or like, this is the percentage of, you know, whatever people on our board of like a company who are, you know, not cishet white men, like who cares? So of course the classic example is like Gina Haspel being the head of the CA. Like, I don't care if it was a woman who ran the black site in Thailand. Like, I don't care if like, it's a woman who's like bombing Muslims or like getting the intelligence to bomb Muslims. Like we should really reject all of that because it is absolutely a form of adaptation. I think that the ways that initiatives to fight racism get reduced to some kind of like capitalist support, thinking about like, you know, the Liberal Party of Canada after the protests against anti-Black violence, we're like, oh, we're just going to give more grants to Black entrepreneurs. And I think that's like a very insidious form of like co-optation of a movement for the purposes of the very system that is exploiting everyone, but is also like fundamentally anti-Black. So I keep talking about capitalism and racial capitalism. And that's because I want us to make sure that we're not separating these systems of power. And so part of it is like, 
thinking about the history of colonialism and the history of capitalism and the history of racial formation as entwined. I think there's also a whole industry around anti-racist books that define race in ways that evacuated of its meaning that it is reduced to skin color or it's reduced to just like in-group, out-group when the racial formation of whiteness, why it expands and contracts throughout the last like hundreds of years since it's like formation through colonialism, that's because of the needs of capitalism because it's a relation of domination. Like whiteness isn't somebody who looks like white. Meghan Markle looks white, but we know that she's not white. Ibram X. Kendi, listen, that makes a lot of money. It makes a lot of money to say that you need to change your heart and mind to be anti-racist or like Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. I think those are the two books that I think have done so much damage to people's understanding of race as entwined with capitalism and as a system of power. Like, oh my God, of course these books are gonna make tons of money because it's like giving you the solution Right. But that is how racial capitalism is adapting around these critiques, because people want solutions now in terms of cultural production. I do think that Marvel movies are kind of my favorite example, maybe just because I love watching Marvel movies and I know that their politics are so bad, like Marvel movies are, of course, necessarily individualistic because they're literal superheroes like this superhero is not. Um, you know, a group of the underclass coming together to like set the CEO's mansion on fire, right? Like that's not what's happening in, in those movies, but they're so pleasurable to watch. And this actually gets back to what Luis was saying about how we are just like consuming this culture that is so antithetical to the kind of politics that we need and really laundering US imperialism in really, really insidious ways. So the way that a lot of these movies work is that they foreground some system of oppression. So Captain Marvel, patriarchy is critiqued in that film. Of course it is. The villain is like a dude who like gaslights her and lies to her and talks down to her and tries to take her power away. And then, yeah, girl power, like she gets her power at the end. It's also an ad for the US Air Force. There are actual images from the movie Captain Marvel that could be in an ad, right? And they got funding from the US Army too. So like, there's like a very explicit connection between these things. You know, you have something like Black Panther, which like, I love to watch Black Panther. It's a beautiful movie. I think Chadwick Boseman, you know, amazing actor, RIP. I like shed tears when he passed away. The project of Black Panther, well, first of all, the title, you know, it's this kind of movement that was very much about mutual aid, about, you know, people taking care of each other when the state has not just like neglected them, but is like actively opposed to their thriving and made it, you know, about this individual superhero. So it's like, first of all, there's the move from like mutual aid to superhero. And then the, it's basically like, if you try to fight colonialism you are yourself a colonizer so this movie very much critical of colonialism lots of jokes for you know people like me who were you know ancestors were colonized by the British Empire we love to watch that we love to see it recognized that you know the colorful clothing 
of Wakanda that ancestral clothing is valued, that they're not like all light-skinned. But yeah, it's absolutely about like the integration of Wakanda into the global liberal capitalist world order at the end, right? So foregrounding that system of oppression because you can't ignore it anymore. You can't say patriarchy doesn't exist. You can't say racism or white supremacy doesn't exist, but you can say they have nothing to do with capitalism. So along with white supremacy, Patrick has been one of the factors that we're learning about most recently. Do you think there are distinct ideological movements or one general movement? Uh, in Colombia and in South America, there's two huge movements that are have been led by women. The, the abortion mm -hmm. bill in, in Argentina comes to mind, and the Chile revolt was born out of women movement that is kind of addressing this post-colonial idea of okay we yeah. wanted to build yeah. a country and uh women have not been part of this construction so what like how can we revolutionize this so yeah if you could talk to that there is no separating white supremacy patriarchy and capitalism that if you try to separate those then the analysis will not just be incomplete but it will reinforce the systems that are being erased in that analysis. You know, the Chilean women's strike, it was such a, an amazing moment. Just, and there have been other strikes since then, you know, in Spain and in Poland. Um, and there's like the Indian women um, right now are such a big part of the farmers strikes and protests. So you can't separate these for lots of reasons. One of them is that capitalism is not possible without the unwaged reproductive labor of women. So we call that social reproduction. In the classic way of describing this, the worker goes to the factory, but who is making the workers bed and food and bearing the children that will be the next generation of labor for capitalist exploitation? Not to say that all relations should be subsumed to the wage relation, but to make visible that this is a form of unwaged labor. And so that's like one way that patriarchy and capitalism are connected. The way that it, you know, it connects to race is of course there's, you know, lots of social reproductive labor that is done by women of color. So, you know, there's forms of labor that are racialized, but also I think that it is really important to think about the ways the status of white women within racial capitalism as a group that is both protected and policed. Protected in the sense of, you know, having access like it within liberal feminism to representation in like, I don't know, the UCP or something, right? And for women of color who love racial capitalism, of course. So that kind of conditional access I mean, some, you know, popular ways of being like the foot soldiers of like white supremacy or whatever, or patriarchy or like white women, or the ways that white women policed women of color kind of historically, and black women specifically within slavery because of this like relation of social reproduction. Also just very explicitly in white supremacist movements because their 14 words or whatever is like future for white children and whatever, like we need to save the white race. And that is absolutely about policing women's reproduction to make more white babies. And that's when you get like white genocide conspiracy theories. It's also how you have abortion bans happening at the same time as brown babies in cages. So like you really can't separate white supremacy from patriarchy. And also when you think about the women in 
white supremacist movements. They represent a very particular kind of, of womanhood, even the ones who are not white. And this is also where I think we need to talk about why uh, turfery is a problem of white supremacy as well. So one of the ways we can think about that is that feminism has been for white women. Historically, because of the ways that gender is a colonial formation, and so that status of woman has been different. This is where like liberal intersectionality is like a bad way of thinking about things. It's not like woman and then add race and then add whatever, right? Because that woman has been different historically as well. So when we think about the ways that feminism expanded its boundedness to women of color, it needed to bound itself in different ways. And one of them has been through turfery. So it like, we really cannot think about that phenomenon of transphobia and turfery without thinking about the ways that feminism has been bounded and the ways that that has been related to race historically. Like turfery is another adaptation of a kind of liberal capitalist feminism. Thank you so much for um, explaining the way that white women are also implicated and have a very specific role to play within um, white supremacy. And I like, I catch myself in that too. Like, I remember at the Adam and Eve meeting, we were talking about like the riots in the Capitol. I was like, oh my God, only white men could do that. And then I was like, wait, no, white women were there too. Like, we can't forget how much like white women are just as much of a part of this. And um, specific, like you said, specifically have a special role in weaponizing that. I think white people kind of want to give an excuse as to why they're not part of white supremacy. So they use whatever marginalizations they have. So saying like, oh, but I'm, I'm a woman, so I can't be white supremacist or people like, mm-hmm. people also want to use queerness as a defense mechanism of not admitting the ways that white supremacy operates. So we've also seen Exactly. On the white supremacist side, there's queer people there as well, and how queer people can also like play that special role. So I was wondering if you could also talk about the way those marginalizations um, work within white supremacy. This is such a great question, and I think that it's something that is really not talked about enough. Or I think it's hard to kind of wrap your head around if there has always been this kind of idea that the person on top, which which structurally is like the upper class cishet white man. You know, if you're not that, then like you're not complicit in, in the system that where that, that category of person is at the top. You know, this is about kind of a settler colonial vision of freedom. That kind of liberal individualistic conception of freedom within capitalism is always predicated on unfreedom. So the freedom of the settler is predicated on the unfreedom of you know, the colonized people, right? So I wrote an article in The Sprawl about this, that when, when we were opening up the economy, what a grotesque phrase during a pandemic, right? When that was happening, the banner image that the Alberta government website used was a quintessential terra nullis vista of Alberta. And it was absolutely like, our, it is our settler, you know, capitalist freedom to open up this economy, even when people are dying of COVID. So yeah, I mean, the whole relationship between COVID, the racial logics of COVID and and eugenicist logics of COVID, I think are something we're gonna be talking about for years and years to come, right? Yeah, so they've chosen their side. 
with with that kind of freedom. There are absolutely so many women at the Capitol. There were some people of color as well, because of course, one way to survive as an individual is to say like, oh, well, I'm casting my lot with the oppressors. You know, it's buying into a system of oppression, thinking that your investment in it will save you from it. Another way to think about it is through femo-nationalism and homo-nationalism and the ways that liberal white feminism, you know, kind of queer people are weaponized to say that like, oh, look at the ways that those like brown people are treating women and queer people. We better bomb them. You know, those conservative women could call themselves feminists. Trump had had like white women as his um, mouthpieces, as communications people, right? Kaylee McEnany has a law degree from Harvard and she looks like a Barbie doll, right? Like that's like, that's her kind of hyper feminist. There's lots of ways to have individual success within these systems. This is where, this is where like the feelings come in. Cause I'm like, how do you, how do you live with yourself? But you know, it happens. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to ask you about what type of mainstream conception about white supremacy can we change in the public? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that we need to do is define race and racial formation really clearly and how it is inextricable from capitalism and patriarchy. So we can't be thinking about these as separate. That is a trap to reproduce racial capitalism. And so I'm doing this pedagogy and praxis project because I see a lot of work that's being done in universities that is not being communicated to the public. The academy is not an autonomous space. It is not like you step on the campus and it's like a different dimension or something. Like we're very much embedded in all of these, you know, systems of power that we've been talking about. And so I think that also as people whose jobs it is to read and think about these problems, we also need to be talking to people about them. So this is a kind of anti-elitist project, right? Like, I don't think that people need to have university degrees to understand what race is and racial capitalism. I would say, like, people also need to think about how white supremacy doesn't just look like people with tiki torches. It looks like people posting about how it's good that there are lower birth rates during COVID because, like, nature's healing itself or something like that is white supremacy as well. We need to, like, normalize using that term white supremacy to refer to all kinds of things that might not explicitly look like white supremacy. And yet to think about the ways that systemic problems need systemic and need kind of collective solutions, like we're not going to superhero our way (laughs) into abolition. And I would just say, like, I have some suggestions for reading that is very accessible. So one thing I was thinking about was the Feminism for the 99% Manifesto by Chinziara Roots, Satiti Bhattacharya, and Nancy Frazier. It's anti-capitalist, it's feminist, it's eco-socialist, it is queer, it's it's also a good, it's a good introduction to social reproduction theory. Um, The writers of that also founded a journal called Spectre, so you can just like Google Spectre journal and see some of that. Haymarket Books has a bunch of webinars, so they're doing that praxis work of like bringing writers in dialogue, but it's very accessible. There are videos on YouTube in the Haymarket account, And I want to say one of, I think, the best books 
on this moment, help us understand this moment. It's Harsha Walia's border and rule. We cannot have like a feminism that is not internationalist or not anti-capitalist. Thank you for, for your time and thank you for sharing all the amazing information. Yeah, thank you for having me on. This is really, it's really fun to just like kind of talk off the top of my head about something that I feel very <laughs> deeply about. Um, if anyone wants to reach me, I'm really easy to find on Twitter and always happy to talk more about these topics. So yeah, take care of yourselves and each other. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news program. We produce this week's episode in 36 territory. We're grateful to be in the traditional territory of the diverse indigenous peoples of this land. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We encourage you to reflect on your own relationship further and ask what accountability would look like and practice for yourself, the communities you're part of, and the larger systems that shape our daily access to opportunities. Thanks to Dr. Rangula for contributing to this episode. I personally find her concept of ideological adaptation very helpful in analyzing any news or media that I encounter. It is important to question how media and art are shaped and how it can be co-opted to establish narratives of white supremacy ideology. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adam and Eve. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. Thank you very much for tuning in. I've been your host, Luisa Fuentes, and uh, have an adamant evening. Mm-hmm.